I needed that reminder today. Um, God is the one who fights our battles. God is the one who brings us victory. And uh, last week we had the opportunity to talk from John 15 about abiding in Christ and what it means to just simply be in His presence and abide in His presence. I hope that you have um, been intentional about that this week. I hope that there have been some things maybe I encourage you to, to try some new things out, you know, and change things up a little bit. I'd love to hear about that if there are things that are working for you and things that uh, helped you connect with God on a deeper level. Um, come tell me about that afterwards. I'd love to hear it. One of the things we ended with uh, in verse 7 of John 15 was Jesus saying this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we, we talked about that, that opening clause, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's the key to understanding that verse. It's not just a blanket, ask God whatever you want and he'll give it to you. But here's my question. Are there ever times where we are abiding in him and he still does not answer our prayer the way we want him to? Or he still does not give us what we ask of him? We're going to find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 today. That's our passage. I want you to turn there with me. As we continue on talking about the way of weakness and the power that, that we find in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1, says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the chapter right before this one, in chapter 11, Paul goes through and lists all the things that he suffered, the things that he endured uh, while trying to share the gospel and in verse 30 of that chapter, he says that he will only boast of those things that show his weakness. And then he carries that idea on into chapter 12 where we just read. And he talks about this man in Christ who had this surpassingly great revelation. He's obviously speaking of himself, but he, he does so in third person to be very careful, even in telling that story, not to make it about himself. Because his whole point is, it's not about me, I'm not seeking to boast, uh, but, but he did have this revelation from God, and I want you to notice, by the way, that this happened, he said, 14 years ago. 14 years ago, he was taken to this, what he calls third heaven, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but I just point that out to say this, because he began this whole process of pleading with God to take away the thorn in his flesh 
presumably right after, uh, that's when God would have given that to him, right after this revelation, right, which was 14 years ago. So he has been battling with this. He has been uh, submitting to this and seeing God work in his life, power through weakness, for the past 14 years. Some of you can relate to that, right? Like you have something that, that has been a thorn in your flesh or has, has caused uh, a real sense of weakness and maybe extra dependence on the Lord and you've been battling with it maybe for longer than that, maybe for decades and decades. And if so, I hope that you're encouraged to know here's somebody who understands what it's like to play the long game when it comes to learning to, to depend on God and having to suffer through some of those difficulties. The reason that he did that, he says, is because he was given this revelation. And it's very interesting uh, that, that he, he keeps pointing out that he doesn't know whether it happened in the body or out of the body. right? So in other words, what he's saying is, I'm not real sure if this was a vision, or I'm not real sure if I was physically transplanted to, to be in the presence of God. And, and he keeps saying, God knows, and for our benefit, it really doesn't matter. The point is still the same. But he says that a couple of times, and we read that, and we might think, well, isn't that kind of odd? I mean, wouldn't you know if you're having a vision, or if you're physically actually going somewhere, and the answer is maybe not. Do you remember in Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison. And it says that an angel came to him, struck him on the side, woke him up, told him to put his clothes on, his shoes on. And then Acts 12, 9 says this. It says, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So Paul had a similar experience, and really to this day, he's saying, I'm still not sure. I don't know if this actually happened, if he actually transported me into this third heaven, or, or if it was a vision that he gave me, but the point is, is still the same. Now the question then is, what in the world does third heaven mean? Because that just sounds weird, right? What is he talking about? Let me give you something to consider in the Bible, when the word heaven is used, or heavens, sometimes it's in the plural, it can mean different things. Uh, for example, in Psalm 104, verse 12, it talks about the birds of the heavens, right? which would just be the sky. It talks about rain in the Bible coming from the heavens. I would say the first Heaven would be just the sky above us. And we see that referred to, that term used in Scripture. Then sometimes the term heavens refers to um, the outer space, you know, the moon, the stars, things like that. Psalm 8.3 where it talks about the heavens being the work of God's fingers in the place where the moon and the stars dwell. So maybe we consider the outer space to be like a, a second heaven. And then third heaven, I would associate that with what we normally think of when we think of heaven. You know, the place, the dwelling place of God as it's described in Revelation eleven nineteen. It talks about God's temple in heaven. That's what he's saying here. The point when he uses that term third heaven, it, we can just understand that he means I'm talking about being in the presence of God. What we would think about as heaven. Uh, paradise is a synonym that he uses in this passage as well. Uh, but can you just imagine what that experience would be like? I wonder if it was similar in any way to what John experienced and has given us in the book of Revelation, which we'll be jumping into here in just a couple of weeks, but where he gave him this, this revelation or this picture of what heaven is like. Maybe Paul had something similar to that. 
But then verse 7 says that to keep him from becoming conceited, that God gave him a thorn in his flesh. That word thorn, uh, think about where we first see a thorn appear in the Bible. Do you remember when we first see that? Doesn't take long into the, the account of Scripture. It's Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve disobey and, and God is, is bringing consequences for their rebellion against him. This was what he said to Adam in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. The thorns did not keep Paul from working the ground. He was still able to grow things and to produce things. The thorns made it a whole lot more painful. And it was a reminder of his rebellion against him. And when we see thorns used, and you see it throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, some even in the New Testament, when you see thorns, it's, it's talking about something very, very painful. Sometimes they would punish people with thorns. Or sometimes it's used uh, as an analogy of, of some type of pain that's being inflicted. But a thorn is something that hurts terribly, but it won't kill you. I mean, think about the New Testament. Jesus had the crown of thorns placed on his head. A horribly painful thing to do, something to do to mock him. Very, very painful, but it wasn't the thorns that killed Jesus. It was the, the nails that were driven through him and ultimately suffocating as a result of that. Uh, thorns are painful. I was reminded of that once again recently because we have, in a planter on our deck, we have a, a, a rose bush. And I recently restained my deck, which means I had to take everything off. And getting that big old thorn bush off was a bit of a challenge. And then getting it back on was a bit of a challenge. And I was reminded a couple of times that thorns hurt, right? You get stuck by those things and it will get your attention. It is painful, and God uses, or Paul uses, under God's inspiration, this analogy of this thorn in his flesh. Whatever he was experiencing was painful, and it was difficult. And he had to continue to deal with it for a long, long time. But my question is, if we could ask Paul, was it worth it? I'm confident his answer would be yes. If you could go back and do it all over again, would you want to be transported into the presence of God and be able to see things and hear things that are so unique that you can't even talk about it to anybody else. You're not even permitted to, to utter a word about what you've seen. Would you still choose to, to go through what you're going through now if you had that encounter with him? And I believe his answer would be yes. And I believe that the answer for us should also be yes when it comes to are we willing to put up with some pain and some difficulty if that allows us to get to know God in a more intimate way, if that brings us into a place of really knowing him, is it worth it? And I think the answer is yes. In fact, he goes back, Paul goes back and lists all the things in chapter 11, the hardships that he had to go through. And I wonder during those times of hardship if he was reminded of these revelations that he had, you know, that, that he was thinking, this is what I have to look forward to. This is what's coming. I know how real heaven is. I know what it's like to be in the presence of God. I've actually seen it with my own eyes. I've heard it with my own ears. And no matter what I go through, I know that this is what I have to look forward to. 
I mean, the things that he endured, it talks about in chapter 11 that he was scourged five times. This is the same punishment that Jesus took when they beat him almost to the point of death before crucifying him. Paul went through that five different times. It says that he was beaten with rods three different times, that he was one time he was stoned and left for dead. He went through a lot. But whatever he went through, he always had that hope. Nobody could take away that hope that he had because of the experience that he'd had, that God had shown him. And, and that stuck with him no matter what. You know, going deeper in our relationship with God often results in more pain in certain areas of our lives. You realize that? I mean, sometimes we think about it in terms of, hey, as long as I'm right with God and if I'm walking with God, then everything in my life is going to get easier and things are just going to fall into place. And it's true that there are aspects of our lives that are much, much better when we're walking with God, right? There is a peace that comes. There is a joy. There, there is a purpose for living. The relationships that we have are at a whole nother level in a positive way when we're walking with God. I mean, there are so many things that walking with God brings good into our lives but I think we also need to realize that when we walk with God that also is going to bring additional pain that we would not experience otherwise the thing we have to ask ourselves is is it worth it and I would certainly argue that it is but here's the deal if you're serious about walking with God um, God's spiritual warfare is real Satan is real the opposition that we face in this life is real. And when you are really walking with God, you become a threat to the enemy. Y'all, if you've been around before, have heard me say, um, I love playing basketball. Uh, when I was a little bitty guy, probably about this tall, I started playing organized basketball. And played up through high school and continued to play for a long time until the knees gave out a few years ago. And I'm still sad, still mourning that to this day. But... Um, but I was thinking back to that and thinking back to the fact that, you know, when I started out when I was six years old, uh, five or six years old, first time I played, I developed as a basketball player faster than most kids my age. Unfortunately, everybody caught up to me as we got older and kind of kept going and, and passed me. But when we were six, when you're six years old, the opposing coach doesn't really come up with a game plan for the, for the opposition, right? You're six. You just go out there, and for the most part, kids just run around in circles, and they don't know what they're doing, and they just have a great time, and all the parents cheer. But if the coach had a game plan as a six-year-old, I can tell you their game plan would have been to stop me. All right? Now, I'm not telling you to be arrogant. I'm just saying, at six, I was the best player on the court pretty much every game. That's just how it was. Unfortunately... They don't make game plans when you're six. It's not a big deal. You just go and play. By the time I got into high school, things were a little bit different. You see, in high school, coaches actually do come up with game plans, and they say, who do we need to stop? Who is the one person on the opposition that we need to be worried about? And let me tell you, my name never came up on their radar. I'll tell you whose name did come up on their radar. It was my best friend, Terrence, who when he was in sixth grade, we met in school. We became best friends. I literally taught him how to play basketball in my backyard. He was horrible. But by the time we got to high school, that had all changed. And he was really, really good. Went on to play in college and was a great basketball player. If you were going to play our high school team and we weren't a great team to begin with, that's who you stopped, right? The, the opposition knows who the threat is. And that's who they're going to go after. 
And I can just tell you that when you're, when you're walking with God and, and you're serving God and you're seeking to share the gospel and you're telling other people about the good news of Christ and the hope that we have in Christ, let me tell you something. You get brought onto the enemy's radar and you can bet that he's going to do everything he can to come against you. He's going to form a game plan against you. As long as, even if you're a Christian, as long as you're just kind of, you know, doing your own thing and you're not really serious about following the Lord and you're not making an impact on the kingdom and you're not telling anybody about Christ, guess what? Smooth sailing for you, at least from the spiritual warfare aspect. Now, if that scares you and you think, why in the world would I want to get serious about following God if that's the case? Let me just tell you, it's a whole lot more exciting to be in the game, being faced with opposition, than it is to sit on the bench. And I say that from experience. You want to get in the game, right? You, you, you want to be active. You want to, to be a part of what's going on. That's, that's where the excitement is. And yes, the enemy will come against us, but it's worth it. Now, in Paul's case... It says that, that this messenger of Satan, which, by the way, isn't that a little bit mind-blowing to begin with? God used a messenger of Satan. It's like, okay, how do, how do we understand that? Well, the simple one is, I, I don't know that we'll ever totally wrap our minds around and understand it, but the simple answer is this. God is sovereign. He can use any means he wants to use. God is in control of everything. In this case, I think it's probably similar to a Job-type situation, you know, where Satan was given permission to come after Job, but there were parameters put around that you can't do this and can't do that maybe it's a similar type of a thing where this messenger of Satan was given permission in a certain area of Paul's life to to attack him to harass him is the word that is used here however we understand that we know that that God allowed this to happen for a very specific purpose and that was to keep him from becoming conceited to keep him humble and he prays. And in fact, he doesn't just pray. It says that, that he is pleading with the Lord three times. Okay, this isn't just a passing. You know, sometimes we pray. It's like, God, you know, if it's okay. You know, it's not that type of a prayer. I mean, this is passionate. I'm pleading with God. Take this thorn away. And the answer? My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Let me translate that. I understand that the answer was no. I'm not going to remove this thorn from your, from your flesh. Why? Because I want you to understand my grace and my power in ways that you never would without it. That's really the point of this passage. My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. And you know, the more I studied that, that phrase the more convinced I became. It's basically two ways of saying the same thing. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. Um, those are basically saying the same thing. Because you know, mercy is not giving us what our sins deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve in spite of our sins. So grace is God's blessing in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Now when we hear that term grace... Maybe our first thought is we go to salvation. We go to uh, the fact that we have been brought into the family of God. We have been reborn spiritually because of, of grace. Ephesians 2 is really a key passage for this. Earlier in Ephesians 2, it talks about being dead in our transgressions and sins. And then you get to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And it says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Obviously, because dead people can't bring themselves back to life. You were dead in your sins, but by God's grace, 
through faith in Christ. So once we put our faith in Jesus as the one, this perfect sacrifice, the Son of God who died in our place, who rose again from the dead, once we put our trust in him, we're saying, I'm giving my life to you, I'm surrendering to you, I'm trusting in you. At that point, we receive this gift that we don't deserve, grace. It's a gift of forgiveness, it's a gift of salvation, and we are made new in him. And so when we hear that term grace, we probably, that's, that's where our minds probably go first. It's our salvation. We're saved by grace. But did you know that grace doesn't stop at the point that we come to faith in Christ? We continue to receive God's grace. God continues to give us what we don't deserve on a daily basis. I mean, the very fact that I woke up this morning and that my heart was beating was a gift of God's grace. The fact that we have air to breathe is a gift of grace. The, my, my family that God has blessed me with is a gift of grace. This church is a gift of God's grace. All these things, everything in our lives, it's all a gift of God. That's God's grace in our lives. And he said, I want you to understand my grace in ways that you wouldn't otherwise apart from this weakness. See, the more dependent we are, the more we go through painful circumstances in our lives, the more we have to depend on God. And the more we realize, oh, this is all just God's grace. That's why I say I think these two are linked together. My grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Both of those are kind of the same idea. Sometimes we don't recognize the power of God in our lives until we get to a point where we are fully dependent on Him, right? While I was in Colorado recently, I did some hiking. That was, while I was there, I, really the main goal was I just want to be with God. I want to be alone and just hear from God. But a big part of that, too, is being outside and getting some exercise and all that. And that, all that works together well for me. Like, it all ties together. And so I did some hiking. And my third day there was the first time I, I, I tried to hike. I thought it would be a little bit more challenging. And um, not, not anything too crazy, but, you know, you're still adjusting to altitude and all that. And plus, um, you know, I don't do it all the time and so there's that uh, but I thought I, I'm going to go for a little hike and and go up to some lakes up on one of the mountains and the lakes were a little over 10,000 feet elevation I think it was like you know 12 1400 foot elevation gain something like that not not anything crazy but enough to you know especially for day three still adjusting to be a bit of a challenge and so but I thought I got this this is going to be fine and so started out it's about three miles up three miles back and um, I'm making my way up and then the incline starts. And it looks like it just goes forever. If y'all ever done one of these hikes, you know, it's like, not like crazy steep, but like a significant incline that just never ends. And I'm going uphill. You know, I'm struggling. I mean, I'm having to stop regularly and catch my breath. I had to pull over to the side while this lady just flew past me and just crushed my ego. But that, that's okay. But it, it was hard. And I'm having a hard time. But all throughout that hike, there was never a point where I thought to myself, I'm not sure I can do this. You know, like it was really, really hard and I had to rest a lot, but I knew I could do it. And I got up to the top and it was well worth it, by the way. In fact, I just, to rub it in a little bit, here's a, here's a picture. That's what I saw and I got up there and just kind of hung out there for a while and, uh, you know, Casey and I decided we're just going to leave this picture up, the rest of the whole thing. So that's, you can just look at that. Now, you won't hear another word I say if we, if we do that. That was Wednesday, okay? Wednesday was hard, but I could do it. Thursday comes around, and I decided, well, I'm going to try something different, uh, something similar, but, you know, 
maybe push it just a little bit more. So I found another hike. I thought, I love the lake idea. That was so fun going up in Peaceful Lake and hanging out there for a little while. So I found another one, and it said there were lakes at, a, at an elevation. And this one, I noticed the last one ended a little over 10,000 feet. This one started a little over 10,000 feet. That was like the, the beginning point of it. And then it goes up to about 12,000. And I thought, okay, this will be... You know, a little more challenging, but, but I think I can do it. And I get there. It did not even cross my mind when I show up that there's going to be snow on the ground at 10,000 feet. I mean, this is, you know, June. And so I just wasn't thinking. So I got there. I thought, okay, that's interesting. And I start out. And then I realized once I started getting into the hike, you can't see any trails anywhere. And it's snow three feet deep the whole way, you know. Um, and... So I've got my little All Trails app kind of pointing, the, thankfully, pointing the direction. I don't have a clue. Everything's white. It all looks the same. If it wasn't for that little app, I'd have really probably panicked and been in trouble. But I'm out there by myself in the snow and, and walking through and falling in with my, almost every step about to my knees and with some steps all the way to my waist. In fact, here's a picture. So you know I'm not lying. That's, that's like waist-deep snow. So I'm in waist-deep snow. I'm not sure where I am other than the app, is pointing me the right direction because I can't see any trails. I'm looking for footprints and just praying, God, please let there be footprints of somebody that has been this way because I'll have some idea I'm going the right direction, right? And with every step, I'm just falling all the way through. That's exhausting. And you're going uphill. Now, when I started out on this hike, I prayed and I said, Lord, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to turn around until I get to the lakes unless you tell me to. Because seriously, I don't want to be stupid. And I know I'm pretty hard-headed about stuff, right? I'm like, just give me wisdom to know. So I get up, and I'm probably, you know, another four to 500-foot elevation from where the lakes would have been. And I realize, I can tell you the details of that later, but I realize it's time to turn around. It just wasn't, it was getting later. The snow was real soft. Now, this, is, this is not a good idea. I don't think this is a good plan. So I turn around and come back. Uh, by the way, while I was there, too, Getting up to that point, I heard some running water, and I thought, oh, it's a waterfall. I must be getting close. So I go over toward it to realize I'm walking on top of a rushing stream and just fell down in the stream about to down to my calves. So if my legs weren't wet enough already, now I'm completely soaked in the stream underneath the snow. It was, a, it was, a, it was just a bit of a challenging situation, I'll put it that way. I prayed a lot on Wednesday when I did that other hike, but those prayers were more like communing with God and just, God, let me hear from you. Let me hear your voice. Show me what I need to see in my life. You know, speak to me about the direction of our church. That kind of prayer. Can I tell you what I prayed on Thursday? God, please get me off this mountain. <laughs> and I started to pray things like, God, just let me step on top. Because every once in a while you would step on top and it would be iced over and you wouldn't fall through. And I'm like, God, just give me... Please let me just walk on top of the snow for a little while, right? I don't want to fall through to my knees with every step. It's exhausting. Um, and then I started praying things like, yeah, just, just let me see some footprints. And the prayers kind of shifted to, God, I need you. Like, I, I need your help. On Wednesday, it was, I'm tired, and this is like pushing me to what I think my limits are. On Thursday, it was like, God, I, I got to have you. And I'm dependent on you. Now, here's the crazy thing. I never felt unsafe. You know, never, never, never had that sense. Um, it was always, you know, I, I knew God was there and I knew God was leading. But I learned dependence in a different way because I had come to the end of myself, right? There was so much weakness involved there. And it was about five and a half hours. I finally got down off the mountain, scared Sean to death because I had no reception, couldn't call her and all that. So it took longer than I thought it was going to. It all worked out. Um, but a great reminder to me that God's 
power is made perfect in our weakness. Let me just go back to the end of this chapter one more time and, and just remind us what his response was because verse 9, after God answered the prayer in verse 9, you see Paul's mindset shift. See, rather, rather than arguing with God, I mean, he prayed about it three times and he pleaded with God and he poured his heart out to God. But once he got an answer from God, rather than continuing to come back and argue with God over and over again, he shifted his mindset and he said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Here's the point, guys. Sometimes God puts us in situations where we are forced to depend on Him. And rather than spending all of our energy praying for God to change it, it's okay to pray for God to change it. But if God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, I want to do something in your life in this time. Rather than spending our energy there, we just need to say, okay, God, show me how to walk through this. Give me your strength. And I just want to remind you today that that, that strength of God does not typically come by being alone by yourself on top of a mountain. And it can happen there, but that's not the preferred method. The preferred method is surround yourself with other people that can come alongside and walk with you. And in the bulletin today, there are links to ministries in this church that if you're going through a difficult season or or just need someone to come alongside, whether that's regeneration, which just helps deal with any kind of brokenness that we all experience in our lives, there's a link there to say, here's how you can do it. If you're going through cancer, there's a cancer support group. There's a link to that. There's a link to ministries that will be starting up in a few weeks. Re-engage is one of those, a marriage ministry. Whether it's you just want to improve your marriage or you're, you're barely hanging on. Or grief share. You've gone through loss in your life. All these are examples of ministries where people can come alongside you and say, we're with you and we're going to walk with you. And we're going to do this together. So don't try to fight those battles on your own. Please. Let others come alongside you. Let God's power be made perfect in you through the other people that want to walk with you in your life. Let's pray. God, we, maybe I should say I, get so hard-headed about things and, and, and want to do things my own way and want to do things in my own ability, my own strength. And Lord, I'm reminded so often that I can't. That your power is made perfect in my life and weakness. Lord, that's true for all of us. So I pray whatever we're trying to do on our own that we'll let go and just surrender it to you today. In your name we pray. Amen.